And I think really the pandemic has brought us to, uh, many of us at least, maybe most of us, to look at our values and, and what really is important. Every year, the Granny Annie Family Story Celebration invites students across the U.S. to share stories from their family's history. It's a way to record these stories for posterity and to strengthen family bonds. It also leads to a story collection that is published each year. They owned a dry goods store located where the famous Italian restaurant Zia's is today. My great-great-grandparents ran the store with their nine children. I guess it makes more sense to save the lives of these people, no matter the cost, Fred decided after a while, still unsure if it was the right decision. The Granny Annie Family Story Celebration nonprofit organization is based right here in St. Louis. And joining us today to talk about this year's stories and the group's 15th volume is Executive Director Connie McIntyre. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. Connie, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. Happy to be here. So, Connie, this has been such an unusual year. It seems like every single conversation I have these days begins with, these are unprecedented times. Did that end up impacting this year's Granny Annie project? Oh, absolutely. Uh, It has impacted us as it has impacted everyone. Um, So uh, we are just kind of feeling our way through it and uh, asking students to please send us their stories and we'll do what we can with them. Um, we, this is uh, actually an excellent time for young people to spend this, a little special time with their family and learn something interesting from their family's history. They have, I guess, more opportunity now than maybe they did in, in previous years. So we're, we're hoping for a, a a nice collection again this year. That's true. So many of us have a little extra time on our hands. Have you gotten yet at this point any submissions where where you know that they did it through Zoom or it was some sort of remote uh, story gathering? Not yet, but uh, I'm, we normally don't receive so many stories until later in the school year. The teachers like to spend a little time building up their students' writing skills and revising skills, and so we're not really expecting um, stories until later, but I'm sure that many of them will come via Zoom, uh, mm-hmm. since that's what so many of our teachers and students are dealing with. And I just wanted to clarify that we'll accept stories at any point, but um, just generally speaking, we get them later in the school year. Sure, that makes sense. And this book that we're talking about today, uh, some of these contributions, this is volume 15. These are ones that were submitted last year. Um, do these have special poignancy now that so many older Americans and their grandkids have to stay far apart from each other? I think that's a really excellent point. And uh, I know certainly in our family, we've had to be creative with how we uh, stay connected with other generations of our family. And and I think really the pandemic has brought us to, uh, many of us at least, maybe most of us, to look at our values and, and what really is important to us and how are we going to use this time in our lives. And uh, I think that 
for most of us, that does come back to family. And so um, I wouldn't be surprised if we have far more submissions this year than normal as we all reevaluate how do we want to spend our time, who in our lives uh, is important to us. Hmm. Well, that would be a nice uh, silver lining to all of what we've been dealing with. And and we're going to share a couple of the stories in this year's volume here in just a moment. Um, but first, can you run us through the criteria on this? I know these have to be written uh, by students in, in particular grades. Is there anything else that, that are the restrictions on what you're looking for? Not a lot of restrictions. Uh, it has. Uh, we're open to submissions from students in fourth through eighth grade or uh, comparable ages if they're homeschooled or from out of the United States. And, and we do accept submissions from all, all around the world. We've had submissions from students in, on four different continents through the years. So, um, so we're open to all students in that age group. The stories themselves have uh, a maximum number of 500 words. So that is one requirement. And the biggest requirement is that this needs to be a story submitted to Granny Annie um, that is from the, the student's family history. In other words, it has to be something that happened before this student was born. So they're learning about something that predated them and still discover how that has impacted their own lives or can impact their own lives. Hmm. Well, that's a great uh, lead-in to this first story that we're gonna we're gonna play here, and I say play because it is read by its student author, um, and that student author is named Allie Winkler. She wrote this story as a sixth grader at Immaculate Conception School in Darden Prairie, and it's called Fred's Decision. Mommy, why don't we have any food? A small child asked his mother outside of Progress Mercantile, a local grocery store owned by Herman Frederick's family. It was late December of 1937 when crisp winter air flooded down the streets of St. Charles, Missouri, causing citizens to shudder. A hungry crowd had gathered outside of the store's windows. Gazing out the glass, 17-year-old Herman Frederick, who went by Fred, hated seeing so many people without anything to eat. "'What you thinkin'?' questioned Margaret, Fred's twin sister. These people are so hungry. I can't just watch them starve out there while I have all this food in here, right? We should give them something. But Pa would be furious, he replied. Margaret thought for a moment and finally told him, Fred, you were voted most likely to succeed. You have almost all of your necessary college funds, and you're just going to give all of that up to these beggars. Fred had never thought of these people as beggars. He simply considered them valued customers. He sighed. But, no buts, Frederick. Do you want to go to college or not? Margaret's face turned redder as she spoke, her voice getting sterner. Yes, yes, I want to go to college. But these people are going to starve if we don't do anything, Fred exclaimed, hostility in his words. If you do anything, I'm not part of this. And this great depression people are talking about is affecting everyone in the entire country. How in the world do you plan to save everyone in the country? She turned her back dramatically, expressing that she was completely serious. Knowing that Margaret needed space, Fred went into the back of the store and started pacing. I can listen to Pa and Margaret by going to college, or I can save the lives of these people, he thought out loud. I guess it makes more sense to save the lives of these people, no matter the cost, Fred decided after a while, still unsure if it was the right decision. He quickly jotted down a letter to his dad, apologizing for not going to college. 
He grabbed a small basket from the floor next to him and stuffed an assortment of grains into it. To avoid his sister, Fred had to sneak out the back entrance and dash past the side windows. Four people immediately spotted him coming around the corner holding a, a basket of bread and sprinted in his direction, a look of gratitude on their faces. Everyone, please make a line and I will be giving whoever I can something to eat. The crowd did as he asked and Fred slowly made his way down the line, giving people food along the way. After he was done, he looked back to the shop and saw Margaret glaring at him through the window. He shrugged and told himself, Fred, you did the right thing. Now, that story comes from Allie Winkler, who's now a seventh grader at Immaculate Conception School. It's called Fred's Decision. Connie, what about this story uh, caught your attention? Well, it's such a powerful story. It's uh, really a coming-of-age story in fewer than 500 words, how this young man is at this turning point in his life, and he has to choose whether to do what his family wants him to do or do what he feels is right. And um, so that was the was the first thing that got my attention. And then also the fact that, um, wow, especially now, this is poignant during, mm-hmm. during the, the COVID-19 and everything that has brought to us and how so many families are struggling. Mm-hmm. And what we need is compassion for one another and how can we help one another. And I think this is a really powerful example of what one person can do and what a difference one person can make. Yeah, it's such a great story, and it's such a cliffhanger. I'm dying to know what happened to Fred. Is that unusual to see the author leaving us wanting to know so much more? Oh, it happens with almost every story, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just this little snapshot that can just stay with a person and um, influence our own lives, even as the readers. Uh, we are impacted by the stories that these young people have shared. It's not just that young person who discovered the story. It's not just that young person's family. It's really everyone who comes in contact with it has the opportunity to be inspired or challenged or somehow changed by what they've read. We actually have a second story here that we're also going to share. This is by Sophia Sykes, and like Allie, she wrote it while attending Immaculate Conception in Darden Prairie. This one is called The Sugar Baroness of the Hill. This is a story of the Consolino family, as told by their granddaughter, Jean Hutchinson. Their story had never been written down before now. It's a story of women's rights, immigration rights, survival, power, crime, and ultimately, the American dream. The 1920s, known as the Roaring Twenties, was a decade of change and tragedy in America. Women had just gotten the right to vote in 1920. That same year, prohibition of alcohol also became law. However, people still drank alcohol. The Great Depression would be coming very soon. The Consolino family came to America and lived on the Italian Hill in St. Louis, Missouri. They owned a dry goods store located where the famous Italian restaurant Zia's is today. My great-great-grandparents ran the store with their nine children. They lived on the second floor above the store. They soon started getting threats from the local crime group known as the Black Hand. The Black Hand threatened to kidnap the children unless the family paid them money. The Black Hand bombed the family store twice to prove they were serious. 
One of the bombs was so powerful that it knocked all of the children out of their beds. Domenico Consolino died during this time. Jean believes one of the bombs might have hurt him. This left his wife, Domenica, to run the store and raise her nine children. One of the goods the Consolinos sold was sugar. They sold lots of sugar. Sugar was the main ingredient in making alcohol on the hill. The Consolinos sold so much sugar that they had to hide all of it in tunnels under the streets. This made the family a huge target for the Black Hand. The Black Hand would soon become known as the Mafia. Jean thinks there might have been a meeting between Domenica Consolino and the Mafia. They must have allowed her to sell the sugar because she was a widow and had nine kids to take care of. She probably paid them money for protection. Then the family made a lot of money. Domenica Consolino became known as the Sugar Baroness of the Hill. The Sugar Baroness was a very powerful businesswoman. She used her power and money to help the community. During the Great Depression, many people had no jobs and little food. Domenica would give her neighbors store credit to buy food, even though she probably knew they would never be able to pay her back. Domenica also gave a lot of money to her church, St. Ambrose. When the church burned down, Domenica donated a lot of her money to help rebuild it. She gave so much that the church had Domenico and Domenica Consolino carved into the Italian marble on the back wall of the new building. The Sugar Baroness of the Hill is still remembered for selling sugar for the moonshine during Prohibition, as well as for her generosity. Now you know the real story and my powerful great-great-grandmother who made this all possible. And that is Sophia Sykes. She's now in seventh grade at Frontier Middle School in Wentzville. And my guest today is Connie McIntyre. She's the executive director of the Granny Annie Family Story Celebration. And if hearing Sophia and Allie's stories make you want to get to work on getting some of your family's histories written down, we're also joined by someone who has some suggestions for that. Sean Rost is an oral historian for the State Historical Society of Missouri and the Missouri Humanities Council. So, Sean, welcome. Hi, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. So, Sean, what have you learned from your family members by sitting down and recording a conversation with them? Well, I think in a lot of ways, just like the stories we heard, sometimes there are elements of our family's past that we don't often realize or we don't really take into consideration until it's too late and a family member has passed away. And I think it's important to get these stories not only to know who they were, but also to get a larger sense of not only your family's history, but even community history, knowing, you know, who went to the doctor where, what's store shopped at, where they could and couldn't go in some cases, is an important part of not only telling your family history, but also telling the larger history of your community, and, and in this case, the state and the nation as well. So the goal here is to get people to open up, to not just tell the same four anecdotes that everybody already <laughs> knows. What advice do you have for getting family members to do that? It really can be difficult, and I think you made a good point there about the, the four antidotes. People often just know their parents' stories and repeat the same ones, but in some cases, you kind of have to let it build over time. There are subjects that are difficult to talk about, but as people have mentioned, especially to me, you know, over time, their parents or their grandparents, aunts and uncles, become more comfortable in them. So I think in a lot of ways, 
just being there to hear the stories, to ask questions, to dive a little deeper into them, in some cases can make people more comfortable to tell them and to share a genuine interest in those stories, not to, you know, in some cases push them away as you heard it one, two, three, four times, but to kind of dig in and want to hear more about it and learn more about those people that are being talked about from past generations. Connie, what advice do you give to kids who are trying to do this and gather these stories for the first time? Well, we actually have uh, a lot of resources on the Granny Annie's website, and one of them is a list of different topics that you might bring up with your loved one to just explore a little and see see if anything um, in that list prompts a, a memory. Um, but I think really the strongest way to inspire stories is to share uh, already published Granny Annie stories. And all of the stories that the Granny Annie has published through this the last 15 years, they are all on our website, mm-hmm. uh, available to anyone who's interested. There's a, a comprehensive index if, there, if you have a topic in mind. Like, say you have a relative who uh, was affected by World War II, but just hasn't really wanted to talk about it or found an opportunity to talk about. Maybe no one has asked this person about Hmm. their experience in World War II. You might start by going to the index, finding some stories from that, um, on that topic and sharing those with your loved one. And that can often open the door and inspire uh, them to share their own experiences. And Sean, I know for some people, they don't just want to write a story. They also want to have something that they're saving for posterity. I know that's a really big subject, and we only have about a minute and a half left to, to talk here today. But what would be a couple technical tips for people who are trying to get a decent recording out of this? Absolutely. Uh, there's a, a strong sentiment from people who want to be able to hear the voices of their family members for generations to come. And it can be difficult I think the best way is to not only find a way to record it, whether by, you know, even something as simple as your iPhone, something like Zoom, uh, a digital recorder, uh, but to make sure you duplicate it. Make sure there are multiple copies so that if one device fails or your computer crashes or your phone gets dropped and broken, that it can be preserved and and kept that way. So always make sure you save things in in basically versions of three in in a written form. (laughs) In a digital form, and in some cases in a hard copy form, such as a, a tape or a CD, but keeping the idea being that you know not all technology lasts forever, so it's good to keep up with the times to preserve these documents and materials. That's a great point. Just one copy of this would be a big mistake. You might really regret just, hey, I'm going to just put this on a CD. Who knows where that's going to be 10 years from now? Yeah, especially making sure you label things too, because people find CDs and they have labels and they might just throw them away. So making sure it's preserved in multiple forms, but also identified and properly kind of kept in good temperature and good condition. Well, that's some great advice there. And and Sean Rost, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Sean is uh, the oral historian for the State Historical Society of Missouri and the Missouri Humanities Council. And I also want to thank Connie McIntyre, the executive director of the Granny Annie Family Story Celebration. Connie, it's just always such a treat to hear these stories. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.